Welcome to Navarro Live. I'm Michael Walker. We've got some meaty stories for you this evening. We're talking climate. We're talking the housing crisis. We're talking about elections in Spain. Have the fascists been fought back? Um, I will be speaking to an expert there. And throughout the show, though, I have a very meaty guest, James Meadway. James, how are you doing? I'm, I'm very well, thank you. That's that's a fine introduction. Thanks for that. I mean it in the most positive of ways. You have a, a, a depth of knowledge I do greatly respect. Okay. Um, as always, let me, as do all of my guys, of course. As always, let me know your thoughts throughout the show. Um, you can send us a super chat or tweet on the hashtag or X. I don't know what we call it now. Now it's called X instead of Twitter. In any case, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with tweet. Tweet us on the hashtag Navarra Live. I'm not aware of a similar period when all parts of the climate system were in record-breaking or abnormal territory. Those are the words of Thomas Smith, an environmental geographer at London School of Economics, speaking to the BBC. And the records are coming thick and fast. This month, we have already seen the hottest day on record globally. That was on the 6th of July, when average air temperatures across the globe reached 17.8 degrees Celsius. As you can see on this chart, temperatures remain above any previous year since 1940, when these particular records began. So that was the hottest day, and it's been hotter than any other day um, or any previous day since. And the record heat is a result of climate change interacting with the natural El Nino phenomenon, which typically lasts around 12 months and comes around every two to seven years. That heats up the globe, um, but that's a natural process intersecting with climate change. As well as the hottest day on record, we have also just seen Earth's hottest June on record. This chart shows how global average temperatures in June each year have compared to the pre-industrial average. The pre-industrial average is set as what we saw between 1850 and 1900. As you can see, June's got warmer and warmer over time. The average global temperature in June this year was 1.47 degrees above the typical June in the pre-industrial period. So we hear a lot about that 1.5 degrees Celsius as an aim. We are very close to that already. Sea temperatures are also off the charts. This matters to nature because it damages wildlife, but it also matters to us because 50% of the world's oxygen is created by marine ecosystems. Now, each line on this chart represents a year. As you can see, the ocean temperature is way above anything we've seen at this time of year since these records began, which was in 1979. Just as worrying for scientists are extreme marine heat waves, which have taken place this year, especially in the North Atlantic. In June, temperatures off the west coast of Ireland were between four and five degrees above average, which the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration classifies as a Category 5 heat wave or, quote, beyond extreme. The BBC has a quote from Daniela Schmidt, Professor of Earth Sciences at the University of Bristol. She said this, We've never ever had a marine heat wave in this part of the Atlantic. I had not expected this. Our models have natural variability in them, and there are still things appearing that we had not envisaged, or at least not yet. People tend to think about trees and grasses dying when we talk about heat waves. The Atlantic is five degrees warmer than it should be. That means organisms need 50% more food just to function as normal. Finally, things aren't looking good when it comes to Antarctic sea ice. On this chart, each grey line represents a year um, between 1979 and today. Um, at this time in 2023, there is 10% less ice coverage than in any other single year. So not 10% less than the average, 10% less than in any other previous year. Now that to me sounds pretty 
terrifying. And Dr. Caroline Holmes of the British Antarctic Survey told the BBC this. This is nothing like anything we've seen before in July. It's 10% lower than the previous low, which is huge. It's another sign that we don't really understand the pace of change. You can say that we've fallen off a cliff, but we don't know what's at the bottom of the cliff here. I think this has taken us by surprise in terms of the speed of which this has happened. It's definitely not the best case scenario that we were looking at. It's closer to the worst case. This all looks very, very bad. And as this BBC report shows, it looks worse for anyone on the Greek island of Rhodes. Fires have made Rhodes a holiday hell. Flames turning skies red overnight. British holidaymakers are among those fleeing for their lives. It literally felt like we were in some sort of apocalypse film because the sky behind the hotel was lit up bright orange and red. The hotel was abandoned. There was just things, you know, sort of people who'd been by the pool. Stuff has been totally abandoned by the pool. Suitcases abandoned in the lobby, on the beach. There wasn't enough coaches to move 800 people, but the fire was coming, the smoke was coming. So we all set off on foot. I walked 12 miles in this heat yesterday. It took me four hours, along with 800, seven or 800 other people. We were told to go to the beach because there'll be boats coming. This happened four times, and then they moved us off the beach. Carry on walking, keep moving away. Many took to the roads, either evacuated by coaches or hire cars. 16,000 have left by land, 3,000 by sea. It is the biggest evacuation from wildfires Greece has ever seen. Now, as you saw on the banner overlaying that clip, there are also now evacuations from parts of the Greek island of Corfu, although I understand um, it's less serious there than it currently is in Rhodes. Um, of course, Greek islands lead the news because of the preponderance of British holidaymakers there. Um, but further afield, there have been even deadlier scenes. Um, notably, northern India has experienced one of its worst ever monsoon seasons. This Deutsche Welle report is from earlier this month. Heavier than normal monsoon rains turned the Bias River into a raging torrent in the north Indian state of Himachal Pradesh. The rushing water destroyed roads and damaged power lines and communication systems, which hampered rescue efforts. Road restoration will take some time, but our priority is to restore electricity and mobile networks so that we can receive information regarding any other stranded people so we can rescue them. Scientists say climate change is making the monsoon rains stronger and more unpredictable. Dozens of people have died because of the floods across northern India. Delhi was inundated with the highest rainfall in a single day for 40 years, swelling the Yamuna River, which runs through the heart of the capital. Local media reports say thousands of people are already being moved to shelters as the river reaches dangerous levels. Further southwest, staff at Jayapur's biggest hospital and medical college were left wading through the wards. The flood surge was so fast, they had no time to evacuate the patients. Over 100 people across India have now been killed by those floods. Now, one might have hoped that this record-breaking extreme weather would spur a greater commitment to taking climate change seriously among our political class. However, these were some of the headlines readers across the UK were treated to this weekend. Now, this was The Telegraph 
on Saturday, PM urged by cabinet to abandon eco policy. So you've got the, the current cabinet saying, slow down on your climate change policies. The FT had a similar line. Tories urged Sunak to rein in green pledges after by-election carnage. So they're connecting um, this demand to the Tories having a pretty bad day when it came to by-elections last Thursday. They're saying, dump the green crap um, and maybe there'll be an improvement in the polls. The Sunday Times um, has a slightly different story, this time on the Labour Party. Khan to rethink ULEZ after call from Starmer. So both parties seem to have taken away from the by-election that climate policies are a mistake. ULA is not exactly a climate policy, but very much related um, in terms of it's, it's more an issue about air pollution. Um, this was the Sunday Telegraph. Gove, net zero can't become a crusade. Um, so Michael Gove, again, seeming to sort of intimate that we, we don't want to be too committed to climate action. Um, and this was the Times this morning. Tory retreat from green policies to woo voters. So as I say, this is all when we are seeing record-breaking temperatures. The science is telling us climate change couldn't be more urgent. The politicians have decided now is the time to maybe treat it with a little bit less urgency than we were before. And it wasn't. Um, they weren't treating it with that much urgency to begin with. Um, let's go to some details from that story in The Times. They write, Conservative MPs are demanding a radical rethink of net zero policies, with the former business secretary, Jacob Rees-Mogg, calling yesterday for a delay to the 2030 ban on sales of new petrol and diesel cars and the end of green levies on energy bills. An Aston Martin exemption to the 2030 deadline, which would give small car makers longer to convert the electric vehicles, is being considered by number 10. The strategy doesn't change, but the tactics might do. We are looking at unpopular stuff that's not really delivering, a government source said. Michael Gove, the housing secretary, signalled yesterday that landlords would have longer to adapt to rules requiring rental properties to have at least a C energy efficiency rating, a 2025 deadline for new tenancies and a 2028 cutoff for existing leases will be delayed. It is understood. And we've got more climate policies being dumped. No new low traffic neighbourhoods are likely to be approved with ministers considering banning councils from using the national number plate database to enforce them. Mark Harper, the transport secretary, has previously cut government funding from the schemes which seek to ban cars from side roads, access to DVLA databases to find drivers who enter car-free zones won't necessarily be available for future schemes, a government source said. And then another policy, Grant Shapps, the Energy Secretary, said yesterday that Britain could max out North Sea oil and gas reserves and still hit net zero carbon emissions on time. Ministers see Labour's pledge to end North Sea drilling as a chance to create a divide on energy security. Now, as for the 2030 ban on new petrol cars, the official line from the government is that it's still in place, it's still policy, um, but they haven't been speaking about it with much conviction. This was the Development Minister, Andrew Mitchell, facing questions from Radio 4's Justin Webb. Is the ban on new petrol cars for 2030 still in place? It absolutely is. And, and it's going to remain in place? Well, well, all I can tell you is it is in place, but the point I'm making... Well, hang on a second. It, you're telling me it is in place, did, but, yes. but not necessarily that it's going to remain in place? Well, I'm afraid I, I can't... Uh, prophesy uh, for the future. But well, I'm telling you... Normally I'm telling with you, government policy, when something's in place, you expect that it will continue to be in place. But what you seem to be saying, if I'm not putting words into your mouth, well, you'll correct me if I am, is, is that it is in place at the moment, but that you're not sure whether it's going to remain in place for the rest of the term of this government. Uh, that is not what I'm saying. What? I'm saying that it is in place and it remains in place. But the point, And it will the remain point, in place. Uh, and, and will remain in place. But the point I'm making is a different one. It is that the government has shown itself adept at defending people 
people from rising prices. We did it in the pandemic. We did it with electricity prices and energy prices. And as the Prime Minister uh, says repeatedly, the key enemy is inflation. We've got to get inflation down. And there was some encouraging figures last week in that respect. Rishi Sunak has also spoken to the press today. He was asked if he was still committed to net zero and the policies needed to achieve it. Of course, net zero is important to me. And that's why after I became prime minister earlier this year, I set up a brand new government department for energy security and net zero. So yes, we're going to keep making progress towards our net zero ambitions. And we're also going to strengthen our energy security. I think the events of the last year or two have demonstrated the importance of investing more in homegrown energy, whether that's more nuclear or offshore wind. I think that's what people want to see. And that's what I'm going to deliver. I mean, there are some within your party who say things like, you know, bringing in, uh, you know, boiler, new, new boiler schemes, that kind of thing should, should, should go. Again, are you prepared to stand up to those in your party who feel that actually the net zero agenda has gone too far? Well, actually, I'm, I'm standing up for the British people because I'm also cognizant that we're living through a time at the moment where inflation is high. That's having an impact on household and families' bills. And I don't want to do anything to add to that. I want to make it easier. So, yes, we're going to make progress towards net zero, but we're going to do that in a proportionate and practical pragmatic a way that doesn't unnecessarily give people more hassle and more costs in their life. That's what I'm not interested and prepared to do. But we are making progress towards net zero. And our, our track record on this is better than the vast majority of other countries that we're compared to. So people should be proud of that, but also should be reassured that what I'm not going to do is unnecessarily add costs to their families' bills. That was Rishi Sunak. Um, neither him nor Andrew Mitchell sounded particularly committed, I would say, to the government's current policies. And as all of our audience will know, our, our, our government's current policies aren't nearly enough. Um, James, what do you make of this contrast between sort of uh, the, the, the dramatic scenes we're seeing in terms of the actual climate, the actual weather, record breaking by all accounts, and uh, the political conversation, which seems to be going backwards this weekend? Well, there's a species of kind of institutional madness that you see coming out here. I mean, the one that really stuck out for me is Rishi Sunak and Andrew Mitchell saying the big enemy is inflation. We've got to do something about inflation. Uh, seemingly not realising that a great chunk of that inflation has been food price inflation. And why have food prices gone up? Well, because we've had loads of extreme weather over the last six, 12 months on top of the invasion of Ukraine and everything else that's happened uh, that has produced shortages that is forcing up food prices. And by the way, if you've just seen the news that India has banned rice exports in certain categories, India exports 40% of the world, is responsible for 40% of the world's uh, rice exports, um, that's going to force up prices of rice across the world. So prices are going to go up because of what's happening with climate change. You can't just go, oh, here's inflation. We have to do something about that. Climate change is utterly separate. These are, these are two completely entwined things. And the fact that we don't have a political class, a prime minister, his ministers that are capable of thinking in these terms is setting us up for a very, very bad fall. Like further down the line, we are going to hit more crises uh, driven by climate change in particular, driven by extreme weather events, increasingly driven by extinctions and problems in the biosphere more generally. And we have a political class that sits there and says, oh, well, actually, we've got, you know, we're going to try and think about these things in, in this sort of magic special way that's completely separate to climate change over there. So it's a, it's a species of institutional insanity that you're starting to see come out here, that there's no, you know, what they used to call joined up thinking, to use the jargon, back in the civil service. It's just not happening. You've got this kind of stupidity that starts to come to the fore instead. So as I said, lots of this is coming after those by-elections, of course, which we spoke in detail about on, on Friday. Um, I want to talk a bit more about the Labour Party and how they have responded um, to those by-elections and especially to them not winning 
Uxbridge. Um, so Starmer has wasted no time using defeating Uxbridge as an excuse to attack Sadiq Khan's ultra low emission zone policy, which Starmer had himself backed only two weeks earlier. I mean, he also used that defeat to get his way at this weekend's National Policy Forum. Patrick Maguire had an interesting piece in The Times. Um, so the headline here, Steely Starmer is embracing defeat in Uxbridge. Labour slashed the Tory majority while showing the party that policies punitive to working families will cost them votes. And Maguire had a quote from someone he calls a source close to the Starmer leadership. They said this, this is the perfect set of results for the Starmer project, a huge swing away from the Tories in Selby and across the country, a tiny loss in Uxbridge and a salutary wake-up call for those in Labour who think it is possible to take liberties with public opinion and still win, especially those who are driving green policies ahead of the public and expecting them to dig deep into their pockets to pay for them. And Maguire also quotes Starmer, who apparently told the National Policy Forum this, this was in his speech um, to the Policy Forum, we are doing something wrong if policies from the Labour Party end up on every Tory leaflet. So we cannot, or the Labour Party cannot have any policies which the Tories might attack them for, or at least which the Tories will consistently attack them for. Um, despite pressure from MPs and unions, Starmer succeeded um, in fending off demands for new spending commitments at the National Policy Forum. So those included things such as universal free school meals or an end to the two-child limit for universal credit. A Labour spokesperson in response said this, this weekend is another proof point that shows that Keir Starmer has changed the Labour Party and is ready to change the country in government built on the rock of economic responsibility and strong fiscal rules. Someone who doesn't sound impressed by Starmer's response to the Uxbridge by-election is Rosamund Kissy-Debra. She became a clean air activist after her daughter died from an asthma attack, which a coroner ruled was in part caused by excessive air pollution from London's South Circular Road. She spoke to Sky this morning. What did you say um, to Sir Keir Starmer if you said, I need to pause this just for now until I'm in power and then I can do more? He has young children. I don't know whether they have asthma or not. And I repeat again, I assume he lives in London. Yes. Up to 12 children are going to die. That's a question th the nation has to answer. And um, we have the worst asthma rates in all of Europe. So countrywide, between 22 and 24 children would die this year from asthma. 12 of those come from London. And I am really sorry I kept on focusing on London, but because you asked me about ULAs, 1.1 million children in this country have asthma care, and it's the number one reason why children miss their education in this country. It affects everyone's life. There are children right now in hospital on nebulizers as I speak, and it's going to get hotter and they are going to struggle to breathe over, over this summer. So that's why I understand the cost of living. <laughs> you know, I am, you know, where, where I am with that. I wouldn't say, you know, I'm extremely wealthy. No. So we are all impacted by it. But this, to me, is about life and death. And for the children in outer London who have emailed me and said to me, oh, please don't stop campaigning for us, I am not. So issues such as ULAs, I mean, as that clip made very clear, are about much more than politics. Obviously, at the same time, Starmer thinks he needs to be hard-headed to get elected. He sort of says, there's no point in just being right. You've got to also be popular. You've got to make sure that the Tories can't attack you on too many issues. Um, James, where do you stand on this route? Have, have the Labour been, or the Labour Party, sorry, been overreacting this weekend? Yeah, very, very obviously, and, and very dramatically. And it, it's kind of, it's a tell. They keep doing this. Um, look, stepping aside from 
what we might think about this. There was a really interesting comment in City AM, the, the sort of tabloid version of the Financial Times, you know, sort of pro-city tabloid newspaper, just talking about how, from a city point of view, as they were putting it, Labour starts to look a bit amateur by having all these U-turns. They look like a bunch of people who can't really be trusted on anything they say. It's all well and good for the Labour leadership to say, oh, well, we said this to these people because we had to get elected. And here's my 10 pledges or whatever. It's all gone. Now we have to get elected. But then they're ditching other things as well. They're ditching commitments he made just a few weeks ago. And the comment piece made exactly the right point, which is that everybody can see this, including all those city finance types they want to appeal to. And they just think this isn't a serious government in waiting. This is somebody and a leadership team acting in quite an amateur way. And it is. And it has serious consequences. The really big picture here is that because climate change is now biting, it actually becomes harder to do things about climate change. It becomes more expensive. Government borrowing costs have risen. Uh, the cost of living, inflation, is, is, remains very high and will remain much higher than we've been used to into the future. It costs more to do all this. There isn't some win-win out there. If you want to do something about climate change, if you want to take action on the environment, you're going to have to start doing things like taxing the wealthy, thinking about who's going to bear some of the costs of adaptation to this changing world we now live in. I think you, Liz, you know, there are lots of flaws in that scheme. I think you need to try and do something about the political problems that the Tories are exploiting in that. But broadly speaking, Zeke Khan's right. And that was a very powerful case put by uh, the mother in the clip you just showed. But you do have to start to think differently than that relatively fluffy version of Starmerism that we had up until maybe 12 months ago, where it's like, yeah, it's 28 billion for green investment. Yeah, there's going to be all this stuff. Yeah, because it's low interest rates, low inflation. It's politics and economics and easy mode. Things are tougher now. And the Starmer leadership response is to basically collapse and fail in every question. I suppose on the policy question, let's go into a bit more depth when it comes to sort of the costs of climate action, because I think the, the left-wing response I've seen to lots of this, which I think is very reasonable, I pretty much share it, is, you know, ULEZ's a good thing, but we do need to make sure that people are compensated um, if they lose out from those policies. So if someone is on a low income and they do have a car which is very old, um, the government should sort of come forward and, and subsidise them getting a new car. But clearly there will be some people who aren't just the riches in society who will have to pay, I imagine, for some climate policies, right? Do we do we at some point have to accept that we do have to persuade people that, yeah, it probably is worth paying a little bit more for energy um, so that we can have a green transition or it, it is worth paying a little bit more for your car so that it can be electric instead of oil powered or gas powered or whatever. Um, do we have to have that argument or can we sort of say we can completely avoid this conflict by saying the rich should pay all of the cost of the climate transition. There should be no cost incurred for basically anyone else. There's, a, there's two things to separate here. One part of it is what are we doing to reduce the damage that we're doing to the environment? So the problem of mitigation. So in other words, how are we reducing greenhouse gas emissions from all the different things that we do? And that's a, a problem really of investment. If it's a problem of investment, then there's a good case for saying, okay, we can go to some wealthy people and take some money off them and that can be invested. I mean, that's the, the sort of blunt way to do this when interest rates are high. And that means taxes on wealth to make that happen. Specifically on you, Les, there's what, 15% of vans in London uh, won't fail to meet the standard required to get to you, Les. That 15% is going to be concentrated mostly on small traders who aren't able, haven't been able to afford, because they're quite marginal, they only have low profit margins, they aren't able to afford a new van. The current scrappage scheme is £7,500 for your old van. A new electric van is like £30,000, £40,000, right? So it's not adequate. So you can see why people are, are quite irate, and it's a very particular section of the population. You can solve that. 
we put some more money in. You can say, okay, we're going to tax uh, some form of wealth and we can make that happen. The other problem we now increasingly have to deal with is I think one of adaptation. The climate is changing all around us very, very rapidly, as, as all the scientists are saying. There are costs to that happening. And whether it's an emergency cost of your holiday in roads isn't going to happen anymore because of wildfire, or it's a longer term cost that there's serious water shortages around the country, we're going to have to deal with that. And the way that we have to try and make those costs work fairly is at the minute through the tax system. That's a major part of what happens. So you want to have a more progressive tax system because you know you're going to have to do things like rebuild a load of water systems in Britain so that everybody has enough water going into the future. You're going to have to start thinking about how you're investing in food supply. There's a whole stack of fairly major questions that we're not really very close to dealing with at this point in time. There are going to be costs and we should stop pretending that those costs don't exist or it's just a win-win or we all get everything nice and green and fluffy forevermore. That isn't the world we live in anymore. So the key bit here is to work out who's actually going to pay for it to say how they're going to pay for it and say what you're going to do with the money you get out of them. And I've got a wonky question for you, not about what Labour Party policy should be, but what it actually is. This has been something we've been talking about on, on, the, on the show a lot the last couple of weeks. And I want to check with you that I've kind of got this right. So in terms of their fiscal rules, they've got one which says current spending should be paid for by taxes, um, but capital spending can be paid for by borrowing. But they've got this second fiscal rule, which says that debt must be falling as a proportion of GDP by the end of their first parliament. Now, for me, what that really puts in question is the £28 billion in climate investment. Because if they say they're going to borrow £28 billion by their final year in, in government, by the end of parliament, which is already a bit of a rollback, I'm not sure how they can possibly do that and stick to their fiscal rule. Because I think the OBR have said that the only way the debt can come down is if overall government spending, which includes current spending and capital spending, falls. So from with your economist hat on, is there any way that the Labour Party can do their £28 billion a year by the end of Parliament and stick to their second fiscal rule, which is to have debt falling as a proportion of GDP? Well, it's not. I mean, you, you've highlighted the, the major uh, binding constraint in that fiscal rule, which is the debt falling by the end of a, a five-year term in Parliament relative to GDP, which, by the way, is really, that's not a very smart measure to have because obviously GDP wobbles up and down a fair bit. We've seen this over the last few years, dramatically, when you had covid so, and you can't necessarily control that. So you could easily just miss your rule because you, you happen to have a small recession, that sort of thing. It's not a very wise uh, measure uh, to use just in a practical sense, but it's also really quite bind binding on how much you can borrow. If you just had the first one, you could borrow a lot and invest a lot. So the way that Labour's trying to get out of this is to say, ah, we'll have loads and loads of growth. And because we'll have loads of growth, our rule is debt relative to GDP. GDP goes up lots and lots. Therefore, we can have more debt and more investment and get loads of growth out of it. Now, that is betting the farm and something that Britain in particular has been quite bad at for a number of years. So you're saying, OK, this growth is uh, suddenly going to magically pick up once Labour's in charge. And secondly, you're also betting the farm on not having massive climate disruption because you want growth to continue, right? And it's really disruptive to have all of this. So none of this makes much sense. If they wanted... If they still wanted to kind of keep that rule and meet the investment spending, the way to do it is to do the thing they won't talk about, which is to talk about increasing taxes, in particular taxes on wealth and on the wealthy. And they, you know, they can get a long way with this. Equalising capital gains tax paid overwhelmingly by the wealthiest people with income tax, £16 billion a year. I mean, it's a great chunk of what you need to get in already covered. But because they won't talk about that, everything's ending up into this horrible, horrible mess. There's, as far as they're concerned, no money for everything. And suddenly all the policies are dropping off left, right and centre. And they're basically inventing this sort of magic fairy of growth 
which is going to resolve everything for them, except, of course, it won't. And that's not the world we live in anymore. There's no point trying to insist that growth is what's going to get us out of this. when growth has been so weak in the past and is likely to be so weak in the future. Mm. I mean, my problem with that as well is that growth will often come from investment. So you can't say we'll do the investment after we get the growth because maybe it'll be the investment that spurs the growth. That's how you know these things normally work. They think it's all going to come from planning reform, which is very relevant to our third story this evening. Spanish elections have ended in deadlock with neither the right nor the left gaining a majority in parliament. The election saw the governing centre-left Socialist Party, or PSOE, increase their seats from 120 to 122. Um, the leftist bloc, so standing under the banner Sumar, which means ad, um, they got 31. Down from the 35, they got under the banner Unidos Podemos, which means together we can. That was in 2019. Um, on the political right, the Popular Party increased their seats from 89 to 136. And the far right Vox saw their number of seats fall from 52 to 33. Now, the results are being generally seen as a disappointment for the right wing parties, especially Vox, who have underperformed the polls. And this was the reaction of the leader of the socialist, Pedro Sanchez, and the leader of the Popular Party, Alberto Nunez Feijú. I called for early elections because I believed, as I've always believed, that we as a society had to decide which direction to take, a forward course for the next four years or a backward course as put forward by the bloc of the Popular Party and Vox. I expressly asked the Socialist Party and the rest of the political forces not to block Spain's government once again. We have won the elections, and we deserve to try to form a government, as has always happened in Spanish democracy. To discuss the results, I'm joined from Madrid by David Adler, coordinator of the Progressive International and friend of the show. David, on the face of it, I mean, these look like not a great result for the left, right? The, the Partido Popular have got the most seats. At the same time, it seems like everyone on the left is breathing a sigh of relief. Make that make sense for me. I think everything depends on where you set your expectation for this election. And now the war, as you can tell from those two clips of Pedro Sanchez and Fejo, is really about the narrative. What is the narrative that's going to uh, allow us to interpret this election favorably toward one side or the other? So let's start with the dominant narrative that really occupied most of the mainstream media in the course of this election, which was we are headed towards a landslide of a coalition government by the PP, increasingly radicalized PP towards the right and Vox, openly neo-fascist, franquista Vox. This didn't materialize. And so the feeling last night, I was over there at, at the Sumar HQ, I'm sure we'll get on to the, the feelings inside, the left-wing coalition partners have fared uh, well or better than expected, was jubilant. People were totally gleeful at this result, at having frenado, at having sort of slowed or stopped or halted the advance uh, of the right. And of course, that's taking place in a general European context, uh, of far rightification. And so the idea was that Spain was showing itself to be a kind of at the vanguard of the fight against the far right, taking it to them, you know, stopping the bleeding uh, in, in Europe by holding the ground. Now, the reality is that the Pepe did amazing. I mean, Fejo is not lying in his opening speech when he said, we won the election. They were the single most voted party. Uh, Vox lost 20% of their uh, seats, of their escaños in, in, uh, in parliament, but they did very well and they managed to basically infect their neighboring PP party with a huge amount of their politics. Uh, as the PP entered these culture wars, US imported culture wars, as stoked these conspiracy theories, 
as abstain from any kind of forbearance and attacking the Partido Socialista, the, the, the PSOE, uh, as being somehow illegitimate and democratic uh, in their own way and have been doing this for months and months and months. So um, to the one side, we're very happy to see uh, we on this show that there's been a, a halt of the advance of the right. However, it has to be a clear-minded one. It has to be a clear-minded one in the sense that, uh, you know, the, the Spanish right in coordination with the French right, of course, the Italian right, and the Polish right, who came out yesterday swinging on behalf of Vox, who governs Poland through the Peace Party, is, you know, advancing themselves. At the same time, there's a myth that needs to be broken on the left. Certain people are looking uh, at the graph that you showed, Michael, at the outset of the segment that shows that technically Sumar underperformed vis-a-vis the 2019 result of Unidas Podemos. But the fact is that six months ago, the Spanish left was so fragmented that the prospect of running under a single electoral vehicle, putting aside some of the major differences that risked the evisceration, disappearance of many of these parties, suffering as they did in the local and regional elections, where in many cases, Podemos and allied parties failed to enter local and regional government, to put those differences aside, mount a counter-defense in the short span of six weeks and put up a result as good as that, you know, coming uh, fourth technically, but really, you know, coming in, in Catalonia in second with no one expected, uh, mounting this counter-defense in short time under that unified banner is nothing short of a miracle. And so I think that buried underneath this kind of complex story uh, or, you know, buried underneath a simplistic story of how the four parties performed and then a more, and a more complex story of how the pieces were working, every party is going to come into it thinking either we overperformed or underperformed vis-a-vis our last result or vis-a-vis our, our latest expectation. And now, uh, as everyone pointed out, the challenge is, can they form a government on the basis uh, of this, uh, this near-miss uh, defeat for the right uh, and a pretty substantial um, challenge for the, for the left forces to get themselves together to come into government. And then uh, let's talk about Podemos and Sumar. Podemos, obviously, I, I assume the largest party within this this Sumar group. Um, Podemos, we've been talking a, a lot about on this show for years. So sort of from 2015 onwards, they were sort of the, one of the, the poster boys of left populism in Europe, along with Syriza. Obviously, people have... Uh, people don't look too positively on, on Syriza anymore, in part because they caved to to the EU and, you know, Greece kind of did continue having austerity. I'm sure there are defenses that can be made of Syriza, but they're not the poster boys anymore, let's say. Um, Podemos, what, what can we say about them um, after having been in existence for at least eight years now? They've been in government um, with Pessoe up to now. I mean, what can we say about them now? I think what we can say for sure is that the Spain in which Podemos emerged, stormed into the streets and into European Parliament and later into National Congress, is a very different Spain than today. The Spain uh, of the of the, 15, uh, of the you know of the indignados, for example, was a very mobilized Spain. It was one in which citizens were taking to the streets. It was one in which that theory of left populism, on which Podemos relied a lot, which was basically there is the mass, there is the caste, and we are going to be the brain to the body as guiding this mass of indignation. Uh, to the sort of eviction, dislocation of that caste and power. The Spain of today is a much more demobilized Spain. I think it's a general crisis of demobilization that we see across Europe. It has to do with COVID. It has to do with hyper-individualization. It has to do with a general more um, secular decline in institutional organizational loyalties to parties, to trade unions, to local community organizations. But it is a fact that Podemos, when it speaks, is not speaking to a plaza because the plaza is empty. 
It's speaking to its party, to its base, to its militants. And that over those years managed to develop a very loyal, very committed, and very talented base of militants uh, that accounts for maybe six, seven percent of the national vote, right? That's there to support the party from the start to the finish. Now that story of what's happening at the grassroots needs to be married with the story of what happened when they were in government. So Podemos took the decision, very controversial at the time, but very understandable in its own way, to enter into government with the PSOE. And one key, uh, the coalition won key ministries from labor to the social agenda to uh, equality and, and, and women's, women's equality and gender equality in, uh, in general, and governed from that position. Now, governing presents its own set of challenges because of the general secular tendency towards anti-incumbency. People just get tired of seeing you and seeing your face. But it plays a much more specific Spanish story when you have a highly mediaticized, highly uh, sort of hypertrophic right-wing control of a political system and certainly a mediatic one where they are just waging legal war, mediatic war. Every day is a new story. It's just, it's just crushing uh, the party in, its, in taking you know, lies and turning them into massive controversies and never apologizing for the violence that is unleashed on their deputies, on their families, doxing them, challenging them, spitting on them in the street. So Podemos was in the front seat of the right-wing reaction that we now see reflected in these results. They were suffering the most attack, whether we're talking about Pablo Iglesias, uh, or Irene Montero, or Ione Belara, who now is the general secretary of the party. These were people who were leading a very valiant fight to win key policy goals in government. But ultimately, over these years, was just taking an absolute beating from a system that was determined to see them fail. And so now in, there's a, a game of kind of musical chairs. The coalition has been kind of rearranged. Uh, one of the more you know charismatic, well-liked, popular, effective, efficient, uh, visionary leaders of this broader coalition government, Yolanda Diaz, who was the labor minister and the second vice, vice, vice president of Spain, took over the kind of guidance, became the candidate for this general umbrella. Um, but we shouldn't delude ourselves into thinking that that means that somehow Sumar is going to be immune to the same things that were unleashed on Podemos. Whoever is leading the charge, Podemos refers to themselves now as the ideological motor of this coalition. I think they're not wrong about that. Whoever takes charge from the left to try to mount a basic defense and expansion of rights for all groups, especially those marginalized ones, who advances a severe, sensitive, and smart critique of Spanish foreign policy, whether from Palestine to Morocco to Ukraine to Latin America, these go people are going to withstand the most severe, uh, the most deranged attacks, um, both from the establishment center-right that controls these dominant monopolized uh, media apparatus, but also from the street-level fascist mobilization. Uh, and I think we need to be clear-minded about that, that even if we're changing leaderships, the underlying dynamics uh, that became very difficult for Podemos to manage are going to apply to ever, whoever is in that front row. So I want to ask you about what's going to happen next. But before that, I want to bring back up um, the election results I showed you earlier. Because what you can see here, you've got Sumar, so the radical left, they're on 31, Pessoe, 122, PP, 136, and Vox, the far right, on 33. And then, as you can see, there's this gray area in the middle, which is 28 others. Um, and it's presumably going to be a battle for those 28 others to see which of these blocks can get over that 176 majority line. Um, David, who are these others? Um, and who has the best chance of, of winning that majority? Or is this so disparate in that grey group um, that you're going to end up having to have basically a second round of elections to try and get a more decis decisive result next time? 
So I just want to quickly correct the record that I don't think that Sumar should be qualified as a radical left party. Uh, this is a party that garnered the support of both the European Greens and the European left group. But I think we can call them, uh, and I don't say this um, uh, in, in necessarily a kind of withering way, this is a social democratic coalition. And I think it's important to emphasize that this is a social democratic coalition because it also reflects on what role the PSOE plays. So now across the world, the story is Pedro Sanchez resiste. Pedro Sanchez, he was smarter than he looked, a brilliant tactician defending the progressive government. But that's not the case. That's not true when you look at the legislative record. It's not true when you know that PSOE vetoed an investigation into the massacre of migrants at Melilla. It's not true when you look at how they sold out the Western Sahara to support Remarco. It's not true when you look at their position on Palestine. And it's not true when you look at domestic policies like the housing law that they waited and waited and waited to support on the labor law that Yolanda Diaz led. At every step of the way, it has been the junior partner in this coalition, Unidas Podemos and now Sumar, who's had to push these basic democratic reforms to keep inflation down, to keep energy bills down, to provide and guarantee these basic rights. And the PSOE has been the laggard while taking credit for their victories and blaming them for their defeats. So, you know, this is, this is what's at stake here. And I think it, it also relates to the question you're asking of how to form a government. So the Sumar and PSOE are now engaged in programmatic discussions. What's going to be the basis of whatever program they're going to form? But we shouldn't overstate the extent to which it's just a seamless one-to-one -one coalition. There are big areas that need to be ironed out in terms of who controls what and to what end, because the PSOE is not interested in advancing too quickly towards a progressive future. They really want to hold the line on social reforms. They are the conservative part of this coalition. Now we introduce the other elements. There are regional parties that really want to support the PSOE and, and Sumar coalition, not really, who would in the case that their choice were Sumar-PSOE, a progressive coalition vis-a-vis -a, -vis a right to very far-right Facha coalition. These people who are openly Franquista, who detest and hope to destroy regionalist, autonomist projects across the country. And the swing, unfortunately, the kingmaker in this situation comes down to a center-right, kind of elite separatist project in Catalonia, known as Junts. Junts became famous for a lot of the controversies around separatism in Catalonia, uh, for political imprisonment, um, and who's now going to be basically, who said already last night, our support for you, Pedro Sanchez, isn't going to be free. We are going to get our pound of flesh out of this coalition. Uh, and so now the negotiations have basically begun. What kinds of guarantees can they make? How can they share power in Barcelona? There was a big fight between the socialists and the Junts over the control of the Barcelona mayoralty. Now can we rearrange control of the municipality in Barcelona, obviously the, the, the gem uh, in the crown of Catalonia? And what kind of devolution will Madrid offer uh, to Catalonia that can satisfy uh, this? Many people are asking, will there be a referendum? We think that that's very unlikely to be on the table based on where the PSOE and even Sumar are vis-a-vis -vis the question of uh, Catalonia autonomy. But we do think that there's going to be a very serious negotiation uh, that's going to happen on that left side of the political spectrum as compared to the right, where, I mean, it is the absolute favorite, uh, uh, the hobby horse of, uh, of the Pepe Vox militancy that these people want to split up Spain, that they wave the Spanish flag, that they have no time uh, or taste for regionalist sympathies, for autonomist sympathies. So that's the question is basically, can those regional powers now conform uh, in a coalition with led by PSOE, but also with Sumar, 
uh, trying to driving the social democratic reform part of the part of the coalition. David Adler, thank you so much for your insights this evening. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. Michael Gove today laid out plans to build more homes in UK cities. The pitch appears to be an attempt for the Tories to show they do have some ideas for the housing crisis while drawing a contrast with Labour, who they say would build on the green belt. Michael Gove laid out the logic here. Regenerating cities makes sense economically. If we want to see the, uh, the dynamic effect that you get in the most thriving places in the world, then we need to regenerate our cities. We need more people in them. Our cities, London, but particularly other cities, are simply uh, less buzzy, less dense, less attractive than the hearts of cities in some other countries. And we need to reverse that. We've already seen what can happen when you have the right sort of urban regeneration here in King's Cross. And to be fair, we've also seen the revival of central Manchester under the leadership of people like uh, Howard Bernstein, Richard Lees, and Andy Burnham now. What we need to do is to make sure that we have the same spirit elsewhere. But of course, it's not just in cities. While we are concentrating on them, because it's right for the economy and right for the environment, more sustainable, it is also the case that new, beautiful garden towns and cities like Wellbourne, which I've mentioned, are a critical part of our proposals as well. Now, it just so happens I pretty much agree with everything Michael Gove said. It's unclear, though, whether the actual policy announcements match the stated ambition. And this is from Sky's write-up of the speech. Among the proposals are plans to ease the development of shops and takeaways into domestic properties and a focus on developing brownfield sites, with Cambridge being singled out as an area where a super squad of planners will work on major housing developments. So, you know, new regulations to mean you can make takeaways into houses um, doesn't necessarily sound as ambitious as, as he was putting forward there. Um, as for the super squad task with redeveloping Cambridge, well, that will be led by Peter Freeman, the chair of Homes England, and be given £5 million to work out how the city can be redeveloped. And Gove does paint a pretty nice picture of what it could look like. Imagine a major new quarter for the city, built in a way that is in keeping with the beauty of the historic centre, one shaped by the principles of high-quality design, urban beauty and human-scale streetscapes emulating the scale and quality of neighbourhoods such as Clifton and Bristol or, or Marylebone and London, with a high proportion of affordable homes and other properties set aside for key workers and young academics. Then connect that new quarter to the rest of the city with a sustainable transport network that sees current congestion becoming a thing of the past, drawing on Cambridge's existing strengths in promoting cycling and walking, allowing for faster and easier travel in and around the city, including to science and business parks. Then, think about expanding existing commercial infrastructure so that the constraints that businesses currently face, including on lab capacity, are removed, supporting more jobs and more growth. Next, turn your mind's eye to how the environment might look in which those living and working in Cambridge will spend their evenings and weekends. Adding to Parker's Peace, Jesus Green and the Botanic Garden, a substantial new green space that rivals not just the royal parks of the capital, but the best urban parks in the world. And in the wider region, we could support some of our most remarkable na nature reserves, such as Wiccan Fair, with what could become a new national park. Finally, we can envisage new centres for culture, perhaps a natural history museum, or a genuinely world-class concert hall, proudly taking their place alongside some of Cambridge's existing institutions, such as the Fitzwilliam and the Scott Polar. 
Now, as I said, that all sounds quite nice. And the focus on getting planners and designers seems to be an attempt to get around opposition from NIMBY, so people who say not in my backyard when it comes to new housing. Um, it's not clear if that will work, though. Immediately ahead of the speech today, the Conservative MP for South Cambridgeshire tweeted this. I will do everything I can to stop the government's nonsense plans to impose mass house building on Cambridge, where all major developments are now blocked by the Environment Agency because we have quite literally run out of water. Our streams, rivers and ponds already run dry. And then after the speech, Gove was asked about backbench opposition and that tweet from Anthony Brown. You are a politician that I think is known to, on occasion, give a more direct answer to a direct question. So I'm hoping you can give us a direct answer to this, do you stand by the government's commitment to build 300,000 homes a year by the middle of the 2020s? Or is it, as a former Conservative housing minister said, uh, a target that's going to be missed by a country mile? And can I also ask, this morning Conservative MP in Cambridge uh, tweeted to say that he will do everything he can to stop this government nonsense. Are you willing to be tough enough with your backbenchers, or will you bend again to Conservatives that don't want houses built in their constituency? The 300,000 target by the middle of this decade is one I completely stand by. Uh, and it will be the case, I'm sure, that Conservative backbenchers and others, once they have a chance to look at our plans, will realise that this is in the national interest, and that's why we're acting. James, I have two questions for you. What do you make of Gove's vision to densify UK cities, and uh, does he have the plans to achieve it? I'm a bit like you, I think. The, the, the Gove is one of the, the smarter Tories on their front bench. He has a, a sense that if they want to rescue Toryism or the Tory party, they're going to have to do some not very Tory things at various points. They're going to have to take levelling up reasonably seriously. They're going to have to build more houses. They're going to have to talk about doing something in Cambridge, in this case, to, to promote growth and development and all that sort of stuff against, as you've seen, some of the opposition from, from local MPs. And actually, the vision he gives is, is quite attractive uh, on its own terms there. It's not one that you'd necessarily immediately disagree with. The bit where he starts to fall down is not just that trying to get more stuff in Cambridge is a kind of perennial, like never-ending cycle of at least over the last sort of 20 years or more of saying, oh dear, growth in Cambridge is constrained because we can't build anything there. We can't expand all the science parks. We can't have more researchers moving in. Cost of housing has gone through the roof and it's just a never-ending round and round and round to trying to tweak the planning system in Cambridge to make it grow. Gove hasn't necessarily put anything on the table to get through that. The bit that I think he is going to run into and the bit that actually Anthony Brown raises a fair point is although Gove talks about the infrastructure for transport and you can have nice walkable streets and all that sort of stuff, it's the, the harder question of we're having to build in water-constrained environments now and Cambridgeshire very much is like that. We haven't built in Britain a new reservoir since 1991 when the population was 10 million less than it is uh, today. The infrastructure that we would need that you know, frankly, if we'd not privatised the water system, uh, could have been built over that period of time, isn't actually there. And it is a constraint on doing things in, Cam in Cambridge or across much of much of the southeast at this point in time, which is the final bit. It's all very well saying, let's do this in Cambridge. I mean, we are once again just going, let's build everything in the southeast. A real vision for the country would be, well, what are we going to do in the rest of the country? What are we going to do to build those new towns that Michael Gove referenced? Why aren't we thinking about building this in the northeast? Why aren't we thinking of a slightly more imaginative vision of what the country could look like rather than going to, this place is successful, let's build more stuff here. Nice as it may or may not be, right? And you've seen some of the architects and artists' designs and that sort of thing. See what actually turns up in the end. Nice as it may well be, 
where's the vision for the rest of the country at this point in time? It still feels a little bit like, once again, we're going back to Cambridge, back to the southeast, going to build stuff where it's already successful, not thinking about what you can do with the rest of the country. Yeah, I suppose they, they'd probably say this is the low-hanging fruit, right? So if you want to bring growth, the low-hanging fruit is to say, just let more people live where growth, well, where the growth potential is very high. And then from that, maybe growth will sort of spread out to the rest of to the rest of the country. Or I suppose you can have two policies in, in tandem. I mean, what, uh, Labour seem to be putting a lot of focus on this idea that planning reform is going to give them this magic growth that they've been hoping for. They're not going to have to raise taxes. They're going to be able to reduce debt um, just by bringing about growth essentially from planning reform. How much, how seriously do you take that? Oh, very. Uh, and look, look, this is this is going back a bit, but, but rather for my sins, I was once upon a, a time a Treasury official, and it really is going back a bit. And that was when Labour was in government. And it was the thing they were talking about then, is that if only we could change the planning system, uh, then we'd magically unlock loads and loads of growth potential, and everything would be great. Uh, and it's all going to, you know... It, it's a kind of it's a free gift. It's it's a low hanging fruit. We just have to stop these Tories moaning about the green belt or whatever, and we'll get on with it. And you can do something. You can try and do some of that. But the problem if you start saying let's build on the green belt, that actually just means let's build in and around London. That's what it boils down to it principally. And if you're once again saying, well, why don't we just stuff everything to London and the southeast? We are going to run hard into some of those big infrastructure problems that we have not solved and that are now coming to bite us very hard in the bum because we've have had. 30 years of privatized water supply, which hasn't resulted in underinvestment. We have had 10 years, more than 10 years, of jamming things into London and the Southeast and not providing adequate infrastructure to back it all up. So I don't think just saying we will uh, loosen the Greenbelt uh, laws, which are designed, by the way, to present, prevent uh, sprawl. They're not there to protect natural beauty. They're designed to stop London and other big cities just sprawling forever into the distance. Um, if you want to densify your city, that was the thinking behind the green belts. That's why they're introduced in the Town and Country Planning Act back in the 1940s. So if you get rid of this, you're creating a license to start to build out London more and more and more, running into those infrastructure problems and actually not doing something to shift the fundamental economic geography of the country, where for too long it's just put everything in London, that's the engine of growth, and everything else will just have to sort of make do. The Tories don't have much to offer Britain's younger generations, but Boris Johnson, at last, has finally done something for millennials. Well, at least two of them. First up, this is Charlotte Owen, who at 29 has become the youngest ever member of the House of Lords after being nominated in Johnson's resignation honours list. I, Charlotte, Baroness Owen of Audley Edge, do swear by Almighty God that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to His Majesty King Charles, his heirs and successors, according to law. So help me God. What a silly country we live in. Um, Owen's qualification for a life peerage was being an advisor to Boris Johnson and then Liz Truss. Um, Tortoise Media was told by sources Owen was, quote, extraordinarily junior. Um, the second millennial with a job for life, thanks to Johnson, is Ross Kempsell. He is the former political editor at the Murdoch-owned Talk Radio. Um, he went on to work for Johnson in number 10 and is currently his spokesperson. Um, Kempsell aged just 31 
was formally introduced to the House of Lords last week. And of course, there was controversy over Labour's new 25-year-old MP. But whatever you think about Keir Mather, he was voted in and he can be voted out. It seems like a much bigger issue when a 29-year-old gets a peerage for life without having to face any electorate at all. I'm in fact, we're just doing a couple of years' work experience with the Prime Minister. Um, James, um, I mean, Charlotte Owen has been trending quite a lot on Twitter over sort of the past few weeks, I think, because people are, you know, so confused. How has this 29-year-old who's had a very junior job working for the Prime Minister ended up in the House of Lords? Um, are you outraged? No, not really. Look, the whole institution's ridiculous. I mean, just take it as read. The, the House of Lords in its current form should not exist. I mean, it is, it was, it was bad when you had hereditary peers with voting rights. And I mean, sort of done a gradual process of reform and ended up replacing it with a system where whoever's in running a government at the moment gets to appoint a load of their mates with some, you know, some nuances around that. But it's nonsense. We, sh we shouldn't have a system like this. We shouldn't have people sitting on wool sacks and wearing all the weird ermine and doing the bowing and scraping and all the rest. There's a whole load of things that need changing. So what you're looking at with, with this, these appointments is a symptom of a system that needs changing rather than like you know, people are particularly to blame themselves. I think that's, that's where we need to get to with that. It would be nice, by the way, if Labour does actually do the thing it says it will do, which is reform the House of Lords. Although I've noticed Keir Starmer seems to be talking a little bit less enthusiastically about anything to do in the Constitution lately. I think if I was Charlotte Owen, and you know, you've, you've got all you know, the media asking, who is this person? How does a 29-year-old manage to get sort of given a place in the House of Lords? I would think, to be fair, this is a, you know, this is, well, it's not one of the democratic institutions, but it's, it's an institution which is supposed to represent us and probably... Um, if people are asking all these questions, I should probably give an interview to someone. So it's, it seems surprising to me that she hasn't sort of said, yeah, this is who I am. This is why uh, Boris Johnson thought I deserve a peerage. I've actually got all of these different areas of expertise and it'd be great to get some young blood into the House of Lords. But it seems almost like she's been kind of embarrassed and she's sort of hiding from any scrutiny. She doesn't feel like she should have to face scrutiny. I mean, if, if you had been given a peerage age 29, James, how would you, I mean, let's assume you'd, you'd accept it for a start. Um, do you think you'd be a bit more public than than Charlotte Owen has been? Well, this, it's a slight. There's a mild sort of leftish dilemma in this. If you take someone like Prem Sikkim, who's a, an accountant and a supporter of Jeremy Corbyn, and did a load of good work when uh, Jeremy was was leader of the Labour Party, and then got made a he's now Baron Prem Sikkim, you know, so he's got a seat in the House of Lords. It's a terrible institution, but if you've got the space to sort of occupy and make use of it, you can do that. And he has a public profile, and he can do something with it. And there's a few others you can think of are in that sort of category, but it's still a deeply imperfect system. And there's a good case for people saying, "Look, I'm just not going to take this because I'm only part of this absolute nonsense of a." show. But there is a problem when you say, exactly as you said, uh, this is actually the, the second chamber. In fact, it's the upper chamber. Uh, there, there are people there making decisions that affect all of us in lots and lots of different ways. And yet somehow there isn't even the modicum of accountability that you might have where they're willing to put themselves in public and at least do an interview and say what it is they're about. I mean, there's God knows how many peers now. What, over a thousand, isn't it? Well over. How, many, how much do you see of these people? When do you ever hear about these people? When do they make themselves account to the public in even the minimal sense of presenting to the to the to the media and to the wider public what it is they're about. How much do we see of debates in the House of Lords? How much do we see of the the work of committees and this sort of thing? There's a there's a there's a shadowy sort of secretiveness to to proceedings that once you get people not wanting to take part in kind of media scrutiny and put themselves forward and say what it is they're doing, in addition to the basically undemocratic procedure by which they're appointed in the first place. Sorry, I was just desperately googling how many people are in the House of Lords. 784 sitting members, I think. So we're not quite over okay. a thousand, but I think it's I think it's the second largest legislative chamber in the world after the Chinese National People's Congress. It's pretty, you know, 
of all the countries in the world. It's the second largest, the House of Lords, where no one is elected and they get peerages for lives. And potentially at the age of 29 after doing a couple of years working for a prime minister. Um, James Meadway, a pleasure as always having you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and thank you everyone for watching this evening. Um, we will be back tomorrow from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night.